0: Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. I'll be speaking with some of Australia's most brilliant innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into concrete reality. We had this strong sense that we couldn't fail. There was no way this couldn't work. Yeah,
1: you know, we really respect our shareholders, and, and to me, you survive if you add value. See, you know, I could look at it and say so I can buy it for that and I can sell it for that. And so if you've got that ability to buy and sell and trade, some people have got it, some people will never get it. Some household names.
0: And some you may never have heard of yet. On today's episode, something a bit different. Given the current circumstances with the coronavirus crisis, I'm speaking to one of Australia's most experienced and knowledgeable virus experts who is very much working on the front line right now to help us better understand where we are at with COVID 19 and how we are building the battle campaign to win this germ war. Professor Dominic Dwyer is a medical virologist at the University of Sydney, and he's Director of Public Health Pathology for New South Wales Health at Westmead Hospital. In those senior positions, he both sees patients and works in the lab on research, but particularly on testing regimes and coordinating diagnosing disease right across New South Wales. He's one of several senior health experts advising the New South Wales government on COVID-19. He has spent decades of his career focusing on viruses and their impact on public health. He worked overseas with the WHO during the height of the SARS outbreak in Beijing in 2003. He's knowledgeable about the Zika virus outbreak just a couple of years back. Way back, he was involved in the treatment of some of Australia's first HIV AIDS patients. He took time out of his 14-hour long days at the hospital to speak to me by phone on Build It, Thou will Come for which I'm very grateful. I spoke to Professor Dominic Dwyer in the morning on Friday, April 3rd. (music) Professor Dominic Dwyer, thank you so much for joining this podcast at this very difficult and critical time with this coronavirus and COVID-19 crisis. Firstly, you're a medical virologist and you are also the Director of Public Health Pathology for New South Wales Health. Just briefly give us a picture of what that actually means.
1: Thanks very much, Helen, for having me on. Uh, Look, The role that I do is working in public health pathology, so making sure that the laboratories are ready to support public health activities in New South Wales and indeed Australia and the region. In the case of COVID-19, what that means is providing the laboratory testing that's fundamental to working out what we do with quarantine, home isolation, as well as patient management.
0: And can you paint us a picture of what your day is like? No doubt you're frantically busy you and your teams all the hospitals we're hearing already at this stage are you know really running ragged can you give us a picture of your day are you trying to socially distance even from your colleagues are you in a lab are you in the hospital are you seeing what's happening in the wards
1: so uh look I do a number of things obviously the days start very early in the morning with with teleconferences and so on, reviewing what's happened the day before in terms of new cases and new numbers. We have particular issues of trying to balance the supply chain of material to do testing because much of that stuff comes from the Northern Hemisphere. We uh, manage the identification of patients, meaning that the clinicians can work out whether the patients need to be hospitalised or managed at home in, in isolation. The increasing number of patients being admitted to hospital is obviously starting to you know, have an impact on, on hospital management. Initially, all the cases came to Westmead Hospital because that's the state quarantine hospital, as well as the state public health laboratory. But now the numbers of cases are higher than what Westmead alone can manage. And so patients are now spread amongst a number of different hospitals. So the laboratory testing anyway drives what hospital clinicians do and what hospital management does in terms of patient management,
0: and how do you feel yourself, and how do you keep yourself well and your teams?
1: Well, look, I think it's difficult. Uh, it's very interesting the psychology of these sorts of outbreaks, and and I've been I worked in China during the SARS outbreak a yes. decade or so ago, and saw it there to see a city like Beijing completely empty. You see, basically, the very best of behaviour, and sometimes. The worst of behaviour. I think the way the clinicians and the laboratory people have uh, acted has been fantastic. You know, it's a little bit like the bushfire scenario. They're all in there helping. They're well and truly putting in long hours, a lot of stress uh, and anxiety about themselves and their families and all of that sort of stuff. Of course, sometimes you see in the community anyway. Uh, pretty poor behaviour. The whole toilet roll scenario and all of that sort of stuff is an example of that. Mm. So so the psychology of, of handling people and so on becomes really important. Certainly healthcare workers, by virtue of the job they do, are actually generally very good and they're there to help and they often and frequently do more than Kind of what they're paid for, uh, uh, and and I think that's one of you know that's one of the reasons people enter that industry.
0: At this stage, are Australian health workers getting sick or seriously sick in any sort of numbers, or does that alarm you or worry you?
1: Oh, it certainly is a worry. Uh, we've been uh, concerned from the get go about the safety of our healthcare workers. Funnily enough, in the laboratory, it's much less of an issue because we're handling specimens and so on, and we do that in a very protective manner anyway. But in the clinical side, yes, we're very worried about the staff. Fortunately, there's been very little healthcare worker infection in Australia, and most of the ones that have been identified in New South Wales have actually acquired the disease in the community, not at work. That's a contrast to perhaps what we've seen in, for example, Italy, or in the U.S., where there have been very high rates of healthcare worker infections, the key to healthcare worker infections and stopping them is having access to the personal protective equipment, the PPE. Uh, and that is a really, again, a logistics issue, really. Um, uh, getting that in and getting people trained in doing that is uh, really important. As far as you
0: can see and the healthcare workers you're working with and at Westmead Hospital where you are, do you have enough PPE? Well,
1: I think uh, I, there are stresses on the access to PPE, yes, within the hospital environment and within the community and for our general practitioners and all of those sorts of groups. That sort of thing is managed by you know, the logistics people in the ministry Uh, both at the state level, but also at the Commonwealth level. So, you know, there's an extensive amount of work making sure we can get access to everything, but it's tight, no, no doubt about it. Your whole
0: focus your entire career has been on viral diseases and then their public health impact, so the spreading of them and the illness that comes with that. You worked on the Zika virus in 2016, but also, as you mentioned, the SARS outbreak in, shall we say, northern Asia, but including Singapore in 2002-03, it was caused by a coronavirus but much less infectious than this one. Can you sort of briefly in layman, Terms give us your take on what's the difference because SARS didn't get here, did it?
1: No, it didn't, uh, and we were very lucky. I mean, there's a number of these coronaviruses that have emerged. Uh, we have a group of them that infect humans every winter and so on and have been around in humans for a long, long time. They're not terribly important. Then we had SARS uh, in 2003. Then we had MERS, which is a Middle Eastern virus, which is currently still a problem in Saudi Arabia and the Middle East. And then we've had this particular one come out of China. They're all pretty nasty infections, clearly. This one is probably more infectious than SARS and there's probably more mild infection. So with with SARS most people who got it got terribly ill uh, and of course there was quite a significant death rate. With this new coronavirus, with the COVID-19 infection, at least 80% of people have a pretty mild infection. Sure some people do very badly and there are a lot of deaths. But the problem when you have a mild infection, of course, is that these people are circulating in the community, transmitting the disease and not really being sick enough to be in a hospital where they're kind of managed or being at home because they're too sick to go out. So it's that transmission. Meaning
0: they don't enough. know that they're so bad so they think, oh, I'm all right to go down to the shops. So I've just got a little tickle yeah. in my throat or a little cough.
1: Well that's right you know i 'll go to work because yeah i'm a bit crook, and i 've just come back from Italy on my holidays i 'm a bit crook i 'll go to work, and I think that's where we've seen much of the transmission in in New South Wales, and I think that's also what's caused those big outbreaks in what we call closed environments, in, in other words, like cruise ships or nursing homes, not in Australia fortunately, but in overseas, where you get people coming on board or into those environments with a mild disease and then of course they spread it to a whole lot of people and if the people who are on that in that nursing home or cruise ship are vulnerable then they're the ones who then really run into trouble with severe disease and end up in the hospital situation.
0: Professor Dwyer, COVID-19, in your expert view, what is the best battle plan or battle campaign? And I hate to use that sort of fairly emotive analogy, but that seems to the community what it needs to be. What's the best battle plan that we can build to
1: beat this virus? Well, look, uh, yeah, I mean, everyone's using that sort of war analogy because that's what captures attention there's a whole series of things you've got to do so for example from my point of view we're really focused on diagnosing cases as quickly and accurately as possible so then the public health folk can intervene and manage them the clinical environment is about how do we look after these people safely and treat them and can we find drugs at work and then there's researchers who are trying to find vaccines and new tests and those sorts of things They're all more systems-based approaches, you know, the laboratory system, the hospital system, and so on. There's also a very important community response to this, and this is what, I guess, a government try to do. But, you know, everyone does have their own responsibility in trying to manage this themselves in the sense of obeying instruction about social distancing and isolation and stuff like that, you know, putting themselves in self-quarantine when they come back from their overseas trip. All of those sorts of things. So, look, you know, it's a mixture of high-end medical stuff to very basic personal practice and community behaviour and a lot of things in between. I think what we've got to do is make sure that the messaging around all of those areas is as sensible and measured as possible. And, of course, because it's changing really quickly, the messaging does have to change really quickly but it often gets swamped by confusion about what the messaging from two days ago was and then you add in social media and television demands and the news cycle all of those sorts of things and you know everybody's an expert everyone's got an opinion and the message for the general public then (laughs) becomes pretty hard to interpret.
0: So if we go back to the beginning of what your specialty and your focus is, which is, you know, diagnosing the people who've got it, i.e. we want to stop the disease being spread. So have we done enough on that? Are we doing enough now? Are we doing enough testing?
1: Well, you know, that's an important question. We're doing as much testing as we can do.
0: Because we don't have enough tests?
1: Because we don't have enough tests, because we don't have enough uh, staff necessarily, because we don't have enough laboratories necessarily, and because the population is so big. I mean, you know, we've got a population of 25 million or so in Australia. You know, you can't, you just can't test everybody. The testing numbers we're doing now far exceed what we did during swine flu. Far exceeds what we did, you know, with other outbreaks, our winter outbreaks and so on. So the laboratories are going 100 miles an hour. Yes, we could do more testing, but we're trying to manage both the supply chain of everything, the ability to do the tests, and the ability also, importantly, to focus testing on those people who most need it. I mean, there are a lot of people who get anxious and say, oh, gee, I love a test just to make sure I'm okay. And that's fine, I get that. But really what you want to identify people who are seriously ill, that people are going to need to come to hospital, the people that are going to need to be quarantined, all of those sorts of things. So you end up with a, a priority list, if you like, of who gets testing, and you just can't do them all.
0: Just uh, almost as an aside, and I, I bring this up, it's, it's a personal story. I returned from the United States with my husband on the 26th of February. There was no talk in the United States throughout February when we were there of any sort of COVID talk in the United States. It was all still talking about China. When we got back here, obviously we were aware of it, but nobody at the airport to tell you to, you know, you've just come back from overseas anywhere you should think about or you should self-isolate. There was no one with a temperature gauge and i wonder did did we miss a lot of those opportunities letting people in from other countries even our own citizens until mid to late march
1: yeah look uh, you know it's it's easy to retrospectively look at things and say we should have done this or done that of i mean course. i think you know, not not being critical but the United States clearly missed what was going on in their own country. There was obviously significant activity going on, on the west coast of the USA. Uh, now it's in New York, of course, and they weren't testing. They had a very limited testing sort of regimen going on in, in America. So they missed the fact that they were having an outbreak, just like the Italians did. I think in Australia, and it's probably because of our, you know, close sort of economic and social ties with China, uh, we were probably on board with getting testing much more quickly and identifying people. I mean, in retrospect, we probably should have closed down flights in the U.S. earlier than we did. You know, that's a kind of, as I said before, a political decision. Uh, I don't know why we closed. You know, it's easy to close flights from Iran, but it's it's not so easy to close flights mm. from the U.S.A. just because mm. of the kind of connections. Now, as to whether airports were handling things properly and advising. Passengers as they got off? Well, you know, I don't know. Mm. Um, That's a, a border force thing.
0: Yeah. Australia did seem to act fairly fast at the beginning. The government put the travel ban on foreign nationals from mainland China on February 1. By my reading back on that, we only had 15 cases then. Do you think we should have? You've just said perhaps we should have closed the borders to the United States earlier. Should we have also had bans on foreign nationals from Iran, Italy? USA
1: a lot earlier than we have. Look, I think that's really hard because these decisions are not just a a medical or a public health decision. They're also an economic and kind of societal thing as well. And I think it's really difficult. I mean, it's easier to say, oh, well, let's close everything. But, you know, there's a whole part of the population that depend on those sorts of barriers not being closed. I think it's a really difficult decision. And I'm not expert enough to say but I think that quarantining is an old fashioned and highly effective way of controlling infectious diseases. We've been doing it for centuries, way back in the plague era. So the principle of that is straightforward. Implementing that though is a, is a you know, complicated political and economic decision.
0: Professor Dwyer, just to get your view then on the the infectious disease part of this and how we stop that, to get through this pandemic from where we are now, is there one or two critical things we need to do at this stage? You just talked about quarantine, the old word, what meaning 40 days of being Mm -hmm. in isolation essentially, but is it still testing and
1: isolation? I think the critical things are ongoing testing and isolation, investigating cases that don't have an obvious link to another. So, for example, you know, a third of cases that come into Australia are people who have come in from the States or Italy or Iran or whatever. Uh, Another sort of third or so are cases that are very close contacts of somebody who's got the disease, household members or whatever. But then it's still around a third where we don't know where they got the infection from. And they're the ones that we need to identify as quickly as possible and work out where they got it from. Did they get it from their school? Did they get it from, you know, the shopping centre or the nursing home or whatever it might be? Because it's that community transmission that we really need to lock down to prevent us getting a kind of Italian or American scenario. Uh, So that's around the testing and identification of patients really quickly. The second thing is then ideally having a treatment for these people, and there isn't. Uh, All the drugs that have been proposed and bandied around from Donald Trump downwards, actually there's no good evidence that any of them work, so we're stuck without a good treatment other than looking after them in ICU or in hospital. Uh, And then the other way that we're really going to solve the problem is with the development of a a successful vaccine, and we're way off time-wise in doing that. So, you know, we can do the testing and the quarantine and and so on. The patient management and the future prevention are are things that we're still grappling with.
0: So now where we are at with COVID-19, is the curve really flattening? Can we say that with some authority what we've had possibly five or six days now? This is being recorded Friday the 3rd of April. Can we say it's flattening?
1: I think we can say it's starting to flatten, but without any great authority. Uh, So, you know, we are seeing, we are seeing, uh, um, you know, reductions in new cases, uh, which is really pleasing. We've just got to be careful because one of the big bulges in all of our testing last two weeks have been people returning from the cruise ships. So if you take the cruise ships out of the equation, a little bit harder to assess the, 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 the numbers of new infections. So, you know, being naturally conservative about this, I'd be wanting to see a longer period of time with a flattening of cases before one could confidently say, oh, we're, we're over this. And even if you flatten the curve, so to speak, you still actually extend the length of the curve. Mm. So, so that's the other thing. You know, we don't have perhaps the, the high peak of a whole lot of activity that floods our hospitals and wrecks everything you know we flatten the curve out so it goes on for a longer period of time so you know i i I think we're i can't say we're doing well but you know in comparison to some other countries like the ones we've alluded to i think we're in a much better situation But how that'll play out next few weeks will tell
0: yeah so human to human infection, particularly ones where you can't tell that they've had a a contact with a direct COVID-infected person, that is really worrying you.
1: Oh, well, they're they're the ones that that you worry about because if you can identify the source of the infection, well, you can can sort of close it down if you like. Uh, If you can't identify the source of the infection, well, you don't know what to do. Um, I mean, yes, you can put that person in quarantine or, or isolation, what have you, but who are all the other people they might have been in contact with? You know, that's that, that's the tricky part.
0: Professor Dwyer, can you say how many people you health leaders estimating could get sick in this country and how many people could die in Australia?
1: Look, I'm not sure I can say that, uh, Helen. I think that um, you need to speak to the people who model kind of impact of disease. Uh, You know, there's a whole uh, uh, scientific field Mm. in modelling pandemics. They're the people that sort of look at the pace of new infections daily and then work out what does that mean. I mean, I think the other tricky part is working out in a country like Australia what the death rate and what the severe illnesses are going to be as a proportion of the total. So, you know, our health system... It is different to northern Italy, it is different to Iran, and it's certainly different to the United States. Meaning better. For example, you know, the death rate in Wuhan was very high. The death rate outside of Hubei province, where Wuhan is, was much, much lower. The death rate in many other countries has been much lower than what was first reported. However, the death rate in, in Italy and Spain and possibly what's going to happen in the USA are awful. Much higher death rates, you know, 10% or so seem to be discussed in Italy. Now, in Australia, we suspect must have a much lower death rate because our health system is probably, you know, more equitable anyway compared to the USA. So I I think we're in a better situation. In countries like Italy and even in the USA, they didn't really recognize they had a problem until they started reporting death rates. Then they thought, oh, we're having a lot of deaths from this thing. There must be many more people in the community than we know. Then they go back and start doing testing. Now, in Australia, we sort of tested aggressively before we had death rates. So we're identifying people earlier. And by identifying people earlier, we're probably reducing the exposure of vulnerable people to those cases. You know, if you identify, you know, somebody skiing in Aspen comes back to Sydney and say, okay, well, you're infected, stay at home. Well, they might then go and visit there elderly parents or, you know, that sort of thing. So, again, it comes back to that early and aggressive testing.
0: Yeah, and what sort of infection rate are we seeing here in this country? Because isn't there a view that it's, you know, that's what we're trying to flatten, obviously, and if you keep it below 1%, you may be doing okay because that exponentiality will not
1: operate Yeah, so what we're talking about there is is what we call the reproductive rate. So in other words, how many persons does one person infect who's got the disease? And here it's with this disease it's reasonably high at about two point five percent. So, you know, in other words, one person will infect, you know, two and a half other people. And that's what's used to model then what the likely infectious rate in the community is going to be. The evidence we have for how many people are being infected really looks at, one way you can look at it is the number of tests we do and the number of tests that are positive. So for the first sort of month or, or so of all of this, we had very few people that were being picked up. It was about half of 1% were, were positive. In the last two weeks, we've moved up to about 4% of all the tests we do are positive. doesn't mean 4% of the population, it means 4% of the tests we've done. But that fortunately so far is reasonably stable. That's a rough measure of, of of disease in the community. Until we get good blood tests to show whether people have been infected in the past, we won't really know how much penetration there has been of the community with this disease. So we know with swine flu in two thousand and nine, when we went back and did a whole lot of blood sampling of the general population in some age groups, you know, twenty percent of the people were infected in that first wave many of them wouldn't have known what we don't have that information yet with this coronavirus and we haven't seen that information come from overseas yet it's too early in the in the outbreak i mean we've only been going you know two or three months really that will tell us eventually what proportion of the population were infected
0: Can I just ask you about someone who's not, uh, I mean, he's an expert in in many ways, but not an expert like you. Do you agree with Bill Gates, who's, I guess you'd have to say he's one of the great capitalists of the modern age, who says that testing and isolation is more important right now than the economy? Yes, there'll be massive economic pain and a massive bill to pay for this with the economy, but that money can be grown again, he says, but lives can't if they all die.
1: Well, you know, he's a very wise man. And I agree. You know, it's sometimes hard when you're working in, and I see patients as well. You know, when you see patients who who die in front of you of a disease, then the money side of things is just irrelevant. You know, it's just not relevant to that individual interaction. But that's a different view if you're trying to take a global view like the politicians have to do of managing a country and a whole lot of people working and not working and in and out of jobs, all of that sort of stuff. But, you know, at the the, the sort of personal level, you can't get away from what it's like to see death and illness and and dying, and that does transcend those other sorts of things. But that's a personal viewpoint, right? But I think Bill Gates is right. The disease and the, the impact it has on individuals has got to be first and foremost The economics is crucial, no doubt about it, and has its own terrible impacts if it doesn't go well, but you can manage that again. But you can't bring back some of the other things you lose with disease.
0: Professor Dwyer, so you're saying, I guess, there's no middle course with this. We do need sort of relatively dramatic shutdowns or we need to isolate ourselves.
1: Well, I think, I think there's a very important role in, in, in our Social isolation and social distancing and all of that sort of stuff. Terribly important. I think that message is getting out to most people, except maybe to, you know, people going to Bondi Beach or what have you. But generally that message I- is getting out. Whether all the interventions that you can propose are useful or not, so, a bit of another question. So, you know, one of the arguments has been, should we close all the schools down? That has a very big impact. You know, we lose a third of our healthcare worker population if you close schools down because mm. of the high number of women in the workforce, you know, so then you can't run your hospitals. And anyway, this disease doesn't look like a particularly big problem in children. Mm. Maybe it so is, we, you know, I mean, getting, yeah. Well, we haven't so, had so outbreaks in schools, have we? Oh, we have had some. We have had some. Uh, No, no, certainly. And kids do get infected, but they're not the driver of the outbreak, like say with influenza. Influenza every year, the outbreaks in adults are basically driven by kids all picking it up at childcare or school or what have you and boarding schools and the like. And they drive, they drive the outbreak then in adults. This infection is different. This is much more about younger adults and and middle-aged adults. And the factors for that are a little bit uncertain, but a lot of it's got to do with travel.
0: So just about this, you know, linking it to what's happening now in the community, what happens when the foot comes off the brakes? What happens when we may be allowed to go out a bit more? Do we all get infected?
1: Well, we may, and we don't know the answer to that yet. What generally happens with other respiratory virus outbreaks? So when swine flu came along, or in 2009, or the 1918-19 pandemic after World War I, it occurred in a series of waves. So you have one wave come through, a whole lot of people get infected, it's really problematic, then it sort of goes away, but then might come back six months or 12 months later. I would imagine that this might happen with this, but I have no evidence for that yet, that we have this wave now, China's gone through the wave. Some of the other countries have gone through their wave. But there might be other waves in the future. And if that happens, then we're probably going to have to reintroduce, you know, the kind of all all the measures we've been talking about. The hope is, though, that you have a vaccine by that stage so that if when the next wave comes, we've got a vaccine ready that we can give to people, assuming it's effective.
0: All right. Responsibly and realistically, how far off is a
1: vaccine as far as you can tell? Well, look, I think it's actually quite easy to make a vaccine. I mean, I'm being very simplistic and glib here, but it, 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 it's, it's easy to make. The difficulty is proving once you've got mm. it, is it safe? Because they're not always safe. Mm. Uh, they're mostly safe. You've got to prove it's safe. Then you've got to prove it works. So after SARS, vaccines were developed, but there was no further activity, so it was never used. And indeed, there was some evidence that it might have been problematic in people. You know, so we don't understand the immune response to this virus yet. So the vaccine stuff, you know, particularly around proving its safety and its efficacy or effectiveness, uh, I think is well down the track. And that takes a while. You know, I, I would have thought a year or so.
0: All right. Now, you've been involved in a couple of breakthroughs. You were the first team to produce a live virus in February. How important was that?
1: Uh, well, we, we weren't actually the first. The, the, the laboratory in Victoria, our equivalent in Victoria, uh, uh, isolated the virus. We then isolated the virus as well. The advantage of the virus isolation is that you can look at the genetics of the virus and understand, well, where did this virus come from? And, and we've been doing a lot of work with the Ministry of Health in that sort of viral genetics area. The second thing was really developing a serology test, in other mm. words, a test that measures whether people have been infected before. doesn't tell you whether you've actually got the infection. No, now. so
0: it's not a diagnostic <laughs> test.
1: Not a diagnostic test, and it doesn't tell you whether someone's infectious. But what it does tell you is whether you've had it or not. So, for example, you know, if we had people who said, oh, well, I've been in, you know, northern Italy in, in, in early February, you know, did I get it? Uh, well, you can now do a serology test and say, well, yes, you've got, Some antibodies in the blood and, uh, yes, you probably did have it and therefore you can either reassure or improve, increase the anxiety of people. That sort of testing is, is very valuable from the population level, you know, understanding how much disease. Has there been in the community already? But, but Professor
0: Dwyer, uh, that's an extraordinary yeah. breakthrough. So you and your team were responsible for making, developing this serology test, which is like oh, a, oh, oh. do you have the antibodies in your body for COVID-19? Yeah.
1: I oh, know. look, there's others doing it uh, as, as well, Helen, uh, all around the world. Uh, I mean, we were the first, clearly, in New South Wales and, and, and have gone on and done, you know, much of it, compared to other places in Australia. But what it requires, is an interesting thing, you know, the ability to grow viruses to, to introduce these serology tests are functions of a public health laboratory system. And public health laboratories are sort of things that are hard to get funding for. You know, everyone wants, mm. uh, you know, the Medicare system doesn't pay to do that sort of work. You know, this sort of work requires laboratories and staff that are functioning mm. all the time in the absence of an outbreak. So countries, you know, we've got to be careful in Australia that we don't underfund and undervalue the public health aspects of laboratories. And other countries around the world have done this and got themselves in a terrible trouble. You know, public health, old-fashioned public health medicine, be it the clinical side or the laboratory side, requires funding and funding in a time when people think, oh, there's nothing around why we're we spending all this money. So uh-huh. you have this sort of constant debate with government about this. But it does highlight, to make these breakthroughs, you've got to invest. The serology testing we've developed is what I would call traditional tests. It requires a sample of blood and all that sort of stuff. Uh, the pinprick tests are a way to try and do this stuff more quickly. The trouble right. with that is, and I know that you know the, the the health minister of Australia is sort of bringing in you know half a million of these things, That's fine. The trouble is we don't know how good they are. Mm, I see. You don't want to bring in a test that's actually not very good because that just gives you bad data and makes mistakes. So uh, I think there's a, a step to go between... What might have been developed now in our in our and other lab versus um, uh, you know something you can roll out to be done in the GP surgery you know with a pin prick or in a drive by clinic or right all that sort of stuff. so
0: yours is more a traditional blood test taken from a vein in your arm or something like that yeah, yeah. now this could be hugely important to find out who's got better from this disease and who will yeah. have immunity. Again, this is an enormous breakthrough, isn't it?
1: Yeah, look, it is, look, it is important. The, the, uh, yeah, it, it's really important in the sense of understanding how much disease has been in the community and who's, who's recovered and so on. The tricky thing is the second part of what you said, and that's around does it mean you're immune? Because mm. we know with things like measles and chickenpox and rubella that if you have the vaccine or you have the infection, then you have the antibodies in your blood for life and that those antibodies are protective. You don't get it again or generally, you know, rarely get it again. With this, we don't know. We don't know whether people who've had the infection might lose their antibodies in six months' time. We don't know whether those antibodies we detect are actually protective. So it's, it's a bit of a step to go and say that this will tell us who's immune in, in the community. It, it, it will to some degree, but we've just got to be a little bit cautious in, in the way that we talk about these tests and saying whether it's going to protect the population. Mm, mm.
0: Who is commercialising it? Are we commercialising it? Do you need more help from business on this? This is a, normally a business podcast.
1: Right, right. Look, I have no experience in that area whatsoever. Um, so, so moving you're just the brilliant
0: developer of these tests. <laughs> you need uh, the, the, people to come and commercialise yeah, it. Yeah, sure,
1: you. sure. Yeah, look how things move from from sort of research and basic and applied clinical research into commercial production is a whole expert field. I think in Australia we're probably not very good at this in comparison mm-hmm. to to, say, the United States, in China even. So commercialising this sort of stuff tends not to happen terribly much in Australia. Maybe that's a reflection of our small population, mm. maybe it's a reflection of our lack of entrepreneur-type spirit. I don't know. I, you know, as I said, it's not my field mm. expertise, but it's clearly something that could be done better in Australia. No, does
0: Yeah, but Professor Dwyer, with this particular serology test that you've developed, I mean, when we're further down the track, when more people have it, and have maybe started to build up antibodies, won't it be hugely important to at least try and test people to see whether perhaps they're able to go back to work or, you know, whether they work with sick people? And I know you said that they may not be protected, we don't know yet, but won't this be enormously important a little bit further into this outbreak?
1: Oh, for sure. No, I think think they will be. Uh, So how we roll this out... Uh, two people a little bit further down the track, as you say, uh, will be important, and you know the commercial sector clearly has a really important role in that. I mean, there there are uh, you know some Australian companies working in this area. That's that's great. Usually, what tends to happen is that it's the international market that provides all of this uh, commercialization, But we shall see.
0: How does this? end. Is the virus killed off? Do we all have to wait for the vaccine? Does it end Um, in nine or 10 weeks or does it end in three or four years?
1: Oh, well, you know, who knows? I think with SARS, we saw that one come and go and it hasn't been back since. I think with the MERS virus, a similar one in Saudi, it's come and it's sort of gone but never quite gone away, which might be a reflection of healthcare systems and other things. With this one, I think it's going to come and probably stay, but in a different form. Maybe it'll just come part of our normal winter lot of viruses. Maybe over time it'll become less Nasty, if you like, best pathogenic is a medical term. Uh, I don't know. I think it'll stay with us because there's such a high rate of mild disease, you know, it, you just can't capture everybody. It may just become another winter virus, just like swine flu did, just another winter virus now, swine flu, and much less severe for humans than it was initially. And I think this might go that way, at least I'm hoping it'll go that way because a reduction in disease severity is really important. We don't want 20% of people ending up in hospital.
0: No. Uh, So is herd immunity possible? Do we want at least 50% of the population infected with this COVID-19?
1: Yeah, herd immunity is very important in infectious diseases. And uh, by that, we mean, you know, if you get enough people in the community that have been infected and have a good immune response to it, then the virus has got nowhere to go, if you like, to put it simplistic. I would hope that herd immunity will help here, You know, and maybe that's what contributed to stopping the outbreak in China. We just don't know, as well as all their interventions. I think herd immunity will become one of the interventions in reducing the impact of this disease, along with all the other things. You know, but that, doesn't thing.
0: that mean 13.5 million people have to, or 12.5 million people have to be infected?
1: Well, that's what, if you got to herd immunity, you would need a very large number of people to be infected. The way you get to herd immunity quicker is with a vaccine. So if you have a vaccine and you vaccinate 13 million people, well then, everybody's protected, you know, hopefully protected. So I that's why the vaccine's really, really key.
0: Yeah, all right. Just really quickly, you mentioned a little while ago about drugs that there's no strong evidence for any of them. You worked early in your career with some of the early, very early HIV AIDS patients. Are none of the antivirals, the HIV drugs, are they not working here? What about chloroquine? We've heard it talked about in the United States
1: Uh, Look, I think they've been disappointing. Uh, So everyone thought that some of the HIV drugs might work because there's some laboratory evidence that they inhibit the virus. Same with chloroquine, uh, which, you know, has been talked about. But basically, to date, the the data is pretty poor in showing any benefit. Uh, And, in fact, all you do is make people a bit, uh, you know, give them side effects in the drugs. I mean, we know with one of the HIV drugs it was very popular they're giving it to people with very mild infection and they all got, you know, terribly upset tummies and, you know, all sorts of other kind of side effects that yeah. made them stop the drugs. So so the drugs have been disappointing. And it's really hard because when you see patients, you know, on a ventilator in an intensive care unit, not having a treatment for them is very frustrating. Clearly. Oh, it must you be know. emotionally but, very tough.
0: Not that you yeah, ever let is. your emotions get in the way, but...
1: Yeah, so 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 it's very difficult. So people tend to throw things at, thinking, oh well, this might work. I'll have a go at this, which is sort of fine. But then you you can complicate the issue by making it a bit worse or, or giving a lot of side effects and what have you. So so really, with drugs, whatever ideas people have, they're always best done in the context of a clinical trial to say yes, this works, or no, it doesn't. Because then, if you have that information, you can provide it to all the other doctors dealing with this around the world uh, and, and say this is a good idea or this is a really bad idea.
0: Just got a few quick questions if we can try and get through a couple. Who is getting it badly in Australia and needs the ICU beds or the ventilators? Is it only our elderly in this community or are younger people getting it badly?
1: Uh, younger people are getting it badly. So certainly in, in the intensive care units, there are young people with severe disease on a ventilator in the intensive care unit. But the, the worse outcomes, like with the flu, to be honest, the worst outcomes are in the older population. So, you know, if you're over 80 or, or over 60, you know, you have a, a worse outcome than if you're in your 20s. However, because the burden of disease is highest in the 20 to 40 year olds, at least in in Australia, of course, you've got a large number of people infected. Some of those will end up in intensive care. So. It's been a real mistake. This meant some really bad social media uh, in Australia and in the US saying, oh, I don't care about coronavirus because I'm young and I'll be all right. But it can be very severe in anybody. It's just that the older you are, the, w- the more likely that's going to happen.
0: There's a lot of information going around the internet. I just want to ask you if some of these
1: things are true or not. Sunshine kills the virus. Sort of, yes. Sunshine does kill the virus but you don't have the sun shining in your throat or your lungs so, <laughs> you know, it doesn't. The main, you know, the key here uh, about sunshine is that it, it, it is a good sort of kind of general disinfectant if you like but that's for viruses that might be on the surface or, on, oh, uh, or something on like that. Or- yeah, that sort of thing. That doesn't help the spread of droplets from person to person, which is the main way the virus is spread.
0: Vitamin D kills the virus. No. Drink hot liquids, that kills the virus. No. Normal household disinfectants kill the virus on surfaces in your home.
1: Yes. So things like, uh, you know, washing your, using a dishwasher or putting your, uh, you know, for your dishes or putting clothes in a washing machine and using soap. Very effective in getting rid of the virus. Washing your hands with ordinary soap, if you do it for 20 seconds or so, very effective in getting rid of the virus. Spraying your, you know, kitchen surfaces and so on with with a disinfectant, highly effective.
0: Okay. Should we all wear even homemade masks? Not buy the masks that you in the health workers need, but should we be wearing even homemade masks if we go out?
1: I don't think so. I think, you know, the problem with masks is they're very good for people who are coughing and spluttering themselves, so putting it on if you had a cough is a good idea, but the masks that people walk around the street with, they actually only last for about 20 minutes at a time. They get sort of moistened and no longer effective. So I think that wearing a mask if you're not at all sick in the community is a waste of resources.
0: All right. Final question. Can we beat this?
1: Are you optimistic? Sure. Sure. Oh, no, absolutely. No, I think I think this is hard. Um, and I think this is, you know, we go back to 1918-19, you know, and I look at, at, for example, my family, my mother's family, who were French, and a third of the men in that family died either in World War One or Uh, the pandemic influenza at that time. Fortunately, my grandfather made it, which is (laughs) why I'm here. But, but, um, you know, so the impact is dramatic. But even with that impact, families and societies recover. And I think this is having a very big impact, but people will recover and society will recover. Um, How long that takes, you know, depends on lots and lots of factors, medical and social and economic and all sorts of other things. But, yeah, clearly we'll get over it.
0: Professor Dominic Dwyer, Medical Virologist and Director of Public Health Pathology at New South Wales Health Pathology. I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for all the work you're doing on behalf of all of us and those incredibly long days you and
1: all the health workers are putting in. Thank you very much, Helen, for having me on your podcast. I hope you
0: enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter, at Helen Dally. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into an empire.